You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. This morning we are starting a whole new series. We are putting away the perspectives, and we are picking up something completely different. Uh, this morning we are starting uh, a new series that we've titled Meaty Faith. And it's a, it's a seven-week look, seven weeks looking at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which is the, um, it's the doctrine of what we celebrate during the Advent, during Christmas time. It is the celebration of Jesus coming and taking on flesh. It comes from the Latin E-N-N-Carnis, C-A-R-N-I-S, uh, for in meat. If you ever thought about that before, but in flesh. Um, if you order uh, chili con carne, what is that? Chili with meat. We actually say it's a part of our regular vocabulary. We have the the with carne in our uh, in our whole in, in our whole vocabulary. But this is what we're talking about. Is we're talking about the incarnation in basically seven weeks. And what we're going to take a look at is we're going to take a look at all of the statements that Jesus says about why he came and what he came to do. Why he had to take on flesh. Why he had to do this whole thing of. Why he, why he did, how, why he wanted to come and take on the nature of a servant to the point of death on a cross, which is what Philippians chapter 2 tells us. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this. We're going to launch into actually one of the, probably one of the more difficult passages to preach in all of this whole series, actually. Because it takes so much background and explanation. And so I'm going to try to do my best to help you see exactly what I think the text is saying here. Um, but, but yeah, so we're going to jump into that. Um, before we do, though, um, this is kind of the reason why we're doing this. Here's the, the, the impetus. Here's the reasoning why um, I want to focus on this. Um, Jesus, in the book of John, says to, uh, says to his disciples, in John's version of the Great Commission, he says, As the Father has sent me, so now I send you. As the Father sent me, so now I send you. And so if you think about that, there's two kind of ideas hanging there, right? Like, as the Father has sent me, so I'm now sending you. So you've got to think about all the ways that Jesus was sent. Why was he sent? Why did he come? And then we have to think about all of the reasons why that then matters to us. And what it has come down to, and what I'm going to kind of say over and over again, at least in the weeks that I get to preach, unfortunately, like Nick mentioned, uh, I won't be... I won't even be here next week, um, and then the following week. Actually, Nick's going to preach next Sunday, and then the following after, um, I think, I haven't confirmed, double, triple confirmed him, he's giving me the thumbs up, Justin Gwynn's going to come and preach the week after Thanksgiving. Um, and so we'll see what happens after that, whether or not we uh, you know, want to keep them around. So, um, but, uh, but what we're studying, why we've studied this, and I want to say this over and over again, is that what we find is Jesus' reason for coming becomes our pattern for living. Right? Jesus' reasons for coming become our pattern for living. The reasons why He states that He comes is why we are now supposed to, as His, as his followers, as His people, why we're now supposed to live our faith out. And so this is why this is important. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. So today we get to look at one of the first statements that Jesus made about why He came. Uh, like I said, this one can be one of the more difficult ones. Um, but before we do, we need to talk about uh, we need to talk about laws. We need to talk about laws. Uh, who here has ever had a run-in with the police? I 
Raise your hand if you have ever had a run-in with the police. Yeah, these guys are back here like, they were over there getting food, and I said police, and they're like, I'm back here, man. I need to talk about this. We need to have some healing time. We're going we're gonna to bring this up here. Okay. Now, once again, everyone who's had at least one in with the police, raise your hand. Okay. Now, look around you. Look around you. That is a vast majority of the people here. Ray is not raising his hand. Ray, you've never had a run-in with the police? Oh, yeah. That's right. Because he, he can outrun the horse every time, right? Like, see you later, Dudley Do Right. Okay. He has run in. Okay, okay. And every time you go to the border, you have to run in with Border Patrol. Go ahead, Stuff. How about shore police? How about shore police? I'm, what, I, uh, that, that's good too. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, let's. Uh, okay, so many of us, most of us, have uh, have at least one stupid story about um, about what is you know at least one stupid story about a run in with the law. If anybody would like to share their story, try to keep it PG. Okay, but if anyone would like to share their story of running with the law, go ahead. Go ahead, Matt. Uh, one time, me and my friends thought it would be cool if we doused a tennis ball in gasoline and lit it on fire and played tennis at 10 o'clock at night. That's <laughs> <laughs> in 10 minutes. That sounds awesome. <laughs> that sounds amazing. So I don't know if you can, I don't know if you know that you can do this. Gasoline is actually a little bit trickier, but you can actually take lighter fluid and stick it inside the tennis ball and fill the tennis ball with lighter fluid and then light it. And you can juggle with it. It's super duper cool. Just so you know, just want to show you that. Yeah, and it doesn't even get because it's lighter fluid from inside. It doesn't even get stuck on your hands. It's no big deal. So, um, yeah, so that's really cool. Yes, go ahead. Uh, my senior year of high school, we were tearing down from a musical, and um, people had to carry stuff from the stage to the dumpster that was in the parking lot, and they had wrapped themselves in parts of the set and were like screaming trash. At 1.30 in the morning, and the police called on us. Okay, okay. Well, and I don't know whether it was for the poor choice in, war, poor choice in wardrobe or for the screaming. I mean, well, you never know. You never know. Anybody else want to share? Oh, Sally. Wait a minute. Time out here. What, sta- what happens at ladies' retreat stays at ladies' retreat unless it's on the way home. Yeah, she like got out of the car and started running back at the cop. No, uh, those of you who are those of you who are in law enforcement, what does that do to you? It's not fun. It's not fun. It doesn't actually make you calm, does it? Yeah, Josiah. Every day of my life. Yeah. Can you imagine their household, right? Like guys in law enforcement, like, uh, you know, comes home from school and be like, hey, son, how you doing? It's good to see you. How was your, how was your day? That applies both to law enforcement families and TSA families. I've often thought about what it looked like at a TSA church during greeting time. <laughs> Just think about that for a little while. Hey, good morning. Right. How's your week? Go ahead, Tyler. Uh, so in middle school, about 20 of my friends decided that we should play airsoft on our abandoned college campus. Um, Why was it abandoned? 
Well, uh, Huron College. Oh, Huron. Okay, good. Yeah, you can well, just say Huron. Super good yeah. With their money. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, okay. <laughs> so we're having a ton of fun. You know, twenty of us running around with fake guns, and uh, apparently we attracted some attention because during one of our breaks, luckily not during gameplay, uh, we ended up being surrounded by seven cop cars, and they approached us from three different directions. Like, one of my friends was like 5-0, and like they hop behind a bush. <laughs> the best decision. Uh, but luckily, they didn't see that guy. So, but they just came up and they're like, "What are you doing?" Yeah. So, life hack, pro tip: if you're not doing anything illegal, don't act like you're doing something illegal by jumping into a bush. Just, just a good. Good frame of reference for you there. All right, anybody else want to share? Go, Brandon, go ahead. All right, so this one time, I was seven. <laughs> so this one time, I was seven, okay? Which was exactly ten years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. So when you're seven, you get task overloaded with more than one thing. Yep. Trying to turn and figure out the gas. And the brake went broadside right into the van. <laughs> <laughs> and then the cops got called, and I got in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, for letting your set. But that was probably back in the day where it was like, well, whatever. Yeah, whatever you want. <laughs> I know. I know, right? <laughs> All right, so uh, I'll share you. I'll share with you one of my funny ones that my kids will relate with. Um, so uh, last summer, we were on our way to, I think it was last summer. No, two summers ago? Two summers ago. We were on our way to Bozeman. Uh, I was going to go speak at camp. At camp, camp. And uh, so I was going to camp, getting ready to speak in Bozeman, and we had the whole, we were going up to Glacier National Park. It was two years ago. We had the whole back just packed. I couldn't see anything, right? I had to use my rear view, or my side view mirrors, and I'm driving. We're in the Saturn, and we're, we're hanging out, and we're driving through Wyoming. I'm in 10 miles from the Wyoming to Montana border, which is the danger zone. Just want to let you guys know that. It's a major danger zone. And um, my kids are, you know, we're getting a little bored because it's now about three hours into the trip, three and a half hours into the trip, and we're like, okay, let's put on some music. And so my kids want some old school Toby Mac, and so we throw it on, and uh, we throw the old school Toby Mac on, and everybody's kind of dancing and bopping and having a great time. And you know, I'm not, I don't have my hands on the wheel occasionally, and so like the the car's like bouncing back and forth in between lanes, but there's nobody there, right? Like there's nobody in Wyoming, so um, so I'm, I'm bouncing back and forth in between lanes, and I'm driving, or having a great time and all of a sudden I look down in my side view mirror and there's a cop there's a Wyoming state uh, there's a highway patrol guy with his lights on and I'm like oh okay grab it and I pull over to the side right and uh, and I pull over to the side and we open the windows and all that stuff and uh, and he comes walking up right and real cautiously and he goes sir um, I've been following you for the past 12 miles <laughs> with my lights on <laughs> There was some erratic behavior, and uh, obviously you didn't notice me. Uh, what's happening here? And I'm like, I mean, there was no other thing but just start laughing and go, would you, would you take that I'm having a dance party with my kids? And he looks in, he looks at my kids, and they're all laughing. He goes, move on. <laughs> so I just want to, so I just want to tell you that sometimes Wyoming Highway Patrols like party on. Right? I just want to let you know, only occasionally. So, yeah, but I, <laughs> I'm just curious why it's the danger zone, Brian. Tell me about that. 
uh, statistically speaking, of course, from just yeah, statistically speaking, by a controlled dis- in a controlled environment, we've tested this, and it is the danger zone. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, my wife and I have been pulled over there. I think a total of eight times. Never once have gotten a ticket. So, just saying. And I'm not talking people out of it or anything like that, except for that time where I'm like, "Would you take dance party?" Okay, like party on, dude. Yeah. So, anyways, I'm using this as a reason. Uh, you know, the reason I'm, I'm I'm talking about this ridiculous stuff. And I actually had asked some of the I had asked some of the guys who do work in law enforcement and asked if they wanted to share any stories of ridiculous run-ins they've had with people. And uh, uh, Jamin said, "I can't find any that are church friendly," so I, I declined. So, but if you want to talk to some of those guys on a different, on a, you know, after church, that's fine. I'm sure they would share plenty of stories with you that would probably uh, shock you and uh, get you laughing at the same time. But the reason why I'm highlighting this is one of the first statements Jesus makes, one of the first statements that Jesus makes about why he comes is it's actually formed in a negative, particularly about what he did not come to do. And then he pairs that with, then this is what I did come to do. And it's found in Matthew chapter 5, which is where we're going to be, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, so open your Bibles, find Matthew chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, shame on you, it's church. Remember it next week. You do not get a gold star. <laughs> So chapter 5 and verse 17 is what we're going to read, and then I'm going to give you the context of the whole thing. Okay, Chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's a simple statement, right? A purpose statement. Do not think that I have come... I think that's, that's that I have come. Do not think that I have been incarnated. Do not think that I took on flesh. Do not think that I came from heaven to earth to abolish the law. But I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now this is a confusing passage, and we're going to talk a little bit about the passage, and then we're going to jump into the context, and then we're going to make some application out of it. But this is a confusing passage. In fact, this particular passage gets interpreted a whole lot of different ways, and people go all kinds of wonky on this. All kinds of wonky. Like, there are some people who state that, well, all we have to do is we have to obey every law and that that's the way that, uh, that's the way that we'll usher in the Messiah and the return of Him. Some people state that as long as we're pure and as long as we're holy and as long as we're reverent before God and we obey all of His laws, then we will make sure to get into heaven. Some people actually go that far. Some people just say that this, uh, what this means is that Jesus is like, well, it's null and void, law's done, he stopped it, we don't have, it doesn't have any application to us whatsoever anymore, and he's done, and so we can just do whatever we want, and we'll figure that, and we'll figure the rest of it out, he'll figure the rest of it out. Some people say, well, we're not under the law, but we're under grace, and this is what Jesus is talking about, is, is that, and that's, I think all of these are actually really, really wrong, or, or small. And I'll show you why. I just don't think they fit with the rest of the text. So let's take a look at the word used here. Okay, so this word fulfill, this word that is in its original context, this word fulfill is the word, it's a Greek word, it's plero. It's plero, okay? Now, plero, it can mean many different things, but one of the best ways I think to describe it is to say that it's to stuff full or to fill with capacity. It's actually used in fishing nets, all right? When you when you catch your load, when you catch the mother load of fish, 
That's what you're doing is you're actually fulfilling your nets. You're, you're fulfilling your nets. Or if you were to take wine and put it into a wineskin and it overflowed, right? And so these things are, or, or say wine into a barrel and it overflowed. Same type of thing. They'd say we fulfilled that. We fulfilled that, that jar. We fulfilled that little uh, wineskin. And so now it's full and overfilled and brimming and now it's poofed out and it's actually full to its fullest capacity. And that's the word that Jesus picks up here when he says that this is what he's doing. It's a, it's a word that indicates robustness. It's a word that indicates uh, like a hole in the ground that's been filled back and is now usable. In fact, it's actually mounded a little bit, like uh, every pothole in Rapid City. <laughs> this is the idea that Jesus is trying to communicate as he states what he, what he states. And so now let's, let's look at the context real quick. Okay, the very first thing is we're going to read from verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way to verse 20 to kind of get your your eyes into the text here. Okay, so verse 1 starts off, Now, when he had saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way you persecuted the prophets, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now, if you haven't caught this already, what Jesus is talking about is this full life. Blessed are these people. Blessed are these people. Blessed is this. Blessed is that. You're salt, man. Be salty. Be salty. And if you lose your saltiness, it's not good. We're just going to throw you out. You're light. Don't hide yourself. Be full light. Shine to everyone. And then he says... Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to stuff them full. To give them robustness. To make them big. To pack them. I tell you that I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a, of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses the law, that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he's talking about don't settle for a a weak, toned-down, loose law. Fulfill it. Make it livable and teachable. Do it in such a way, understand the law in such a way that it actually is teachable to other people. Okay, Now, so that may not clear anything up. What I find interesting about the Sermon on the Mount, and this is something I I think at some point in time we actually would love to just do a slow kind of unpacking of the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, but um, if I were to give the Sermon on the Mount a flashy pastor title, like we give all these uh, awesome titles to all these awesome things, you know, like Psalm Spectres, of course, is awesome. Um, But we give all these things, but if I were to give a flashy title to Jesus' sermon, it would be this. It would be Jesus and the Upside Down Kingdom. (laughs) 
Because what Jesus does is as a king, he's standing there as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a, and he is a king. Like he, he, he even thinks so. He acts like a king in so many different ways, especially in the book of Matthew. And this is actually what Matthew's trying to show is the king that has come. And King Jesus, when he stands there, he starts talking about the kingdom that he comes from. He starts using language and he starts taking ideas of the kingdom that he comes from and he's teaching it to the people who are not yet part of his kingdom or are hopeful to be part of his kingdom. And he starts talking about these really strange ideas, helping these people who are sitting there understand that his kingdom is not like this kingdom. I, mean, I don't know if you've seen this, but if you change that word blessed, okay, we think blessed, we're like, hashtag blessed, like I get all of my stuff, right? So like, blessed is a different word in our, our context, but blessed in the original context is simply happy. It's simply happy. Happiness, right? And so think about this, he's like, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And he introduces this totally upside down world where we're looking at this going, man, the last thing I want is to be poor in spirit. The last thing I want is to be mournful. The last thing I want is to be meek. The last thing I want is to hunger and thirst. The last thing I want is to be merciful to anybody unless they show me mercy first. And he pulls all of this stuff together. He goes, this kingdom is so upside down. My kingdom is upside down. I look at this and I go, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the ethic of the kingdom of heaven that we commonly call the Beatitudes, Jesus says these things are completely different. They're, they're, they're the entire backdrop that sets up the rest of his teaching and the rest of his ministry in the Gospels. But then what he does is he then attaches this idea to the fact that his hearers, his disciples, are the light of the world, salt of the world. They give flavor, they preserve, they generally make life better. Like That's the imagery he's talking about. And the disciples are here to help people see. And that in order to do this, Jesus is not going to relax the law. He's actually going to fulfill it. He's going to make it bigger. He's not going to take the bar and lower it like we would want him to. He's going to take the bar and say, there actually is no bar. And you're going to see that in just a second. Okay, Jesus states that his job is to make the Jewish law have life. Now the law, this word law, even conjures up some really, really different words, some really, really different ideas in our head. The word law is really, really different for us. When we say law, the first thing you think of is police. Everybody thinks of police. But you might also think of judges. You might also think of lawyers. And nobody wants to think of those guys. Congress. <laughs> The law can be this really confusing idea, but if Jesse Perigo were here, I'd call on him and I'd say, Jesse, what does the law mean? And he would say the law is the complete teaching, wisdom, and instruction of the Lord. The complete wisdom, teaching, and instruction of the Lord about himself and about how he relates with the world and about how we're supposed to relate with him. That's what he would, that's what Jesse would define as the law. And this is how we actually should be understanding it. This is the Old Testament and the New Testament understanding of what the law actually is. It's the entirety of the teaching of the wisdom and instruction for the people of God to relate with God and how he relates with his people. What we see here, what we see all the way through today is that each individual, when they come up against the the idea of the law, they have like this, this reaction. This interesting reaction to it. And I think it says an awful lot about us. Like we love, we love the law when the lights are out in front of us. But what happens when the lights are behind us? 
I mean, I pull over and then I say dance party, of course, and so that's what happens, right? But each individual has some things that they believe about the law or about the law of God and obedience that gets at the heart of some of the basic issues of our theology. And this is really practical because I don't know about you, but my issues of theology come out when my life goes haywire. If something happens where all of a sudden something breaks in my life or, you know, i got to go get surgery or something like that. I don't know if that ever happens to you or not, but it happens to me from time to time. Um, but if something like that happens, right, the first thing that happens when things are falling apart, when things are breaking, when things don't come together, when everything falls apart, everything you touch, the first thing I think is, what am I doing Wrong, God. What did I do to deserve this? Right? I don't know if you're there, but that's what I think naturally. Now, one of the reasons why that's an issue is because what does that do? It's basically if I'm good, if I'm obeying, God's going to make sure that things don't break. But when things break, my theology practically says, what did I do wrong? Why are you cursing me when I've clearly obeyed you in every single thing? Today I want to focus on some of the ways that we see the law, that the people saw the law in this day, and why Jesus is saying what he's saying and why it matters to us. Now the phraseology I'm about to use is something I've stolen because that's what good pastors do. They steal it from other people. And I just stole this from a guy named Sky Jathani. If you don't know Sky, he's a wonderful author and a pretty decent speaker. Sky Jathani, he, he, he wrote a couple of books. Um, his last name is spelled J-E-T-H-A-N-I. Uh, wrote a couple of books. I've read in the last couple of years. One called Immeasurable, which is a fantastic book. I'd encourage everybody to read it. It's short little chapters and you can bite it off in little chunks. And then there was another one called With, which is actually where I'm stealing most of this terminology. But the ideas are um, not necessarily the way that he unpacks them. I'm just going to steal them for my purposes. And so we're going to take a look at several views of the law, several views of the world, and, uh, and my hope is to help you see what Jesus is getting at and where we, where we mis-see the law, and then provide you some practical teaching and hopefully something that you'll commit your whole life to. So my estimation is there's basically five views, basically five views of the law and of God and of, of people. And the first one is what we would call life under God. Now, we even say this in our Pledge of Allegiance, right? Uh, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the Republic of which it stands, one nation under God, right? One nation under God. Now, the way that I mean this, and the way that Sky means this, the way that I'm picking up on this, is this is the idea that the law of God is this, uh, this law is declaring to us that God is a powerful, sometimes vindictive, angry being, and that we obey out of compulsion or fear. If you don't do this, then I will smite you. Hit the smite button. This is commonly the, the far side theology. This is what you'd get in far side comics from, uh, from God in the far side comics. If, no, if nobody reads far side, apparently. <laughs> but this is the view that God is powerful, God is big, and we live under his thumb. And the law is that. It is us living under his thumb. And the people in, in Jesus' day, these people would have this idea that they would say, oh man, in fact, Malachi talks about this. Oh man, the law of God, such a burden. Oh, what a, what a horrible thing. Man, we have to obey. We have to do all this stuff. We have to bring all these sacrifices. In which God's law the entire time is like, no, actually you get to do this stuff. But this is the idea of, when God says jump, we say how high and what color? Fine, don't even worry about it. 
It's actually in there. This is the view that God is a drill sergeant or a bitter master. You respect Him, He gets the job done. Without Him, we don't survive. But you never love a drill sergeant. You never love a drill sergeant. You may, never, you may survive because of His training. You may survive because of the way that He has equipped you in the battle. But you're never going to love Him. You're never going to be like, give me a hug there, drill sergeant. In this view of the law, it is something you must do in order to please God. You must do it to please God. Or you face judgment. And at any point in time, He will smack you down. And we actually hear this in common phrases, right? Like Some people will tell you things like, well, you better get yourself right, or God's going to smack you. He's going to get you. He's going to come and slap you around. This is the God of fear, and is very much what we see in other religious systems and in super conservative legalistic Christianity. We live under God, under His thumb, and the law is here to keep us suppressed. Second one, life over God. Life over God. In this view, the law, the law that the law that we look at is we, what happens is we believe that we actually live in such a way that as we obey the law, we will harness God in order to use Him for our pleasure, in order to use Him for our. We'll harness God's power and use Him and direct Him. Right? This is the same idea. You see it all over the place. Like, okay, oh man, all we need to do, like God says, if two or more are gathered, then He is there. So let's gather a whole bunch of people together and pray. So that we can force God to listen to us. Because the more people who pray, the louder our prayers are going to be, and God's ears will finally hear us. It's not actually the way that God works. It's not actually the way that God works. This is the idea that the, the, the law is the key to unlocking God's power and using it for your purposes. In this view, God is in this view of God, as we obey Him, He becomes on our side. You hear this terminology. Oh, our God is on our side. No, God's on His side. And what we begin to do is we begin to force His hand to do the things that we want. And it's everything from smiting our enemies to making our nation prominent on a global scale or taking down the terrorists, whomever you deem them to be, whether they're your neighbor or the guy across a different country. This view is one of the most prominent views of the law that the people of Jesus' time had. And it's a very prominent view we have today. Obey God, He will be on your side. Obey God, He will be on your side. And then, you will never fail. In all the things you do, you will... No, that's, yeah, you're, you're fine. You're never going to suffer and nothing's going to go bad. That's the one that actually, right, like I say when I say, like, God, why is everything falling apart? What have I done wrong? Because in that view, I've been obeying, and so therefore I deserve God to, I deserve God's power in what I do. This view is alive and well today. It's the very heart of what we call fundamentalist Christianity, where God hates whatever we do and loves only the ones whom we deem lovable. Number three, it's life from God. Life from God. And this one is a little stickier. They're getting more and more complex, okay, as you go on. You'll, you'll kind of see this. In this view of the law, we believe that the law is the key to unlocking God's blessing. Not just His power, not only His power, but His blessings. As I obey, I'm going to gain life from God. As I obey, my kids are going to flourish and are going to thrive. As I obey, I'm going to have children. As I obey, I'm going to not get cancer. As I obey, I'm going to... All these things are going to be these blessings that God will just unfold before me. 
It's a slight twist from the view of life over God, but it's just as prevalent and destructive. This view believes that as we obey and we see God give us the things that we need for this life and our life, um, and our life will be one of prosperity and it's one of goodness. In this view, your obedience is directly tied to your suffering. Got cancer? Well, it's because you screwed up. You have unconfessed sin. Just got fired? It's not because you're a moron, but because you disobeyed God. God wants. And then on the contrary, right, here's the destructive part. Cancer-free? Must be doing something right. IRS gave you a check you weren't counting on? Whew. You obeyed correctly. This is a small idea of what the law is. It's not fulfilled. Fourth one. So you got life under God, life over God, life from God. Now we have a life for God. We live for God. Now this is, again, it gets complicated and it's very minuscule, the difference here. But in this view, the law of God... He gives us His laws so that we can be Him on earth. So that we can be Him. Something goes wrong in the idea of who God is, and He's this distant, absentee landlord who simply shouted down a bunch of laws, shouted down a book so that we could obey Him, and as we obey Him, we actually then become His power on earth. We become His power on earth. This viewpoint can be very slippery because it actually sounds right. Like most of I can hear it in, in your heads. You're like, why is this bad? We live for God, right? That should be, should be something that everybody agrees with. But the problem with this whole thing is that God doesn't actually need us to do anything. He invites us. He does not need us to be His power. He does not need us to do anything because He's already here and He says, come, come, come on, come on, I'm already doing stuff. Let's go. He says, all authority has been given to me, now therefore go. I have all the authority, now you go. It's a direct, it's a really, really minuscule thing to look at. And this is one I think where all of us kind of dwell. What happens is, anytime we strive to do something for God, it ends up falling apart in our hands and we end up bringing in more destruction where, where, where we intended life. And I don't know if you see this in the world around you, but no matter what you do, no matter what I do, I think I can relate this way, no matter what I do, when I do stuff under the, when I do stuff for God instead of alongside of God, when I do stuff for God without actually talking to Him or asking for His presence or asking for Him to come with or talking to Him or responding to Him or any of that stuff, when I just do stuff, what does it do? It falls apart in my hand. and Sometimes it actually brings a lot of destruction in. We would call that self-reliance or whatever. Many have this view of the Bible and of God. We look at it as the Bible is the basic instructions before leaving earth. Right? That's the book for me. But the basic instructions before leaving earth, which basically indicates like these are the things that we these are the things we do in order to get this life to work properly. The landlord left us a manual, and we unlock the key to this life by just simply obeying these laws and obeying these rules. And that is not that's also a small way to see the law. It's a small way to see the law. It is not robust, not fulfilled. And that brings us to the final one. And this is the one I think that Jesus is getting at because what you're going to see is you're actually going to see the reaction of the people after this sermon. And the last one is that it's life with God. Life with God. In this view of the law, God has given us instruction, teaching, and wisdom in order to point us to learn how to trust Him, to love Him, to work with Him, and to walk with Him. 
In this view, the law of God uh, points out our need for Him. It points out the inability that we have to actually even fulfill this stuff. Like, we can't do the, what was it, 613 laws that are in the, in the Old Testament. We, there's no way. You can't even begin to start to obey every single thing to the letter of the law. And then Jesus even steps in. He's like, hey, you heard, don't murder people. Yeah, that's a really good thing. But here's the deal. Don't even hate someone. Like, you can't even do that. You want to forgive someone? No, you need to forgive them like a bunch of times to the point where you can't even count. See, the law points to how we should relate with other people in order to point them back to God. The law points out how we should treat other people in order to confront our own dark hearts regarding how we think and feel about people. And the law should also point us to our inability and incapacitation to do anything good. And everything we do on our own just falls apart in our hands. And we should, the point of this whole thing, should be to cry out to God and say, I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. I need you to do something because I'm screwing this up every single day day. Life with God is the point of the whole Sermon on the Mount. As he starts off going, blessed are the meek. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Why are the meek happy? Why would they be happy? Or blessed are those who mourn. Why would he say that? Why would he say, man, happy are you when you mourn? He does give a reason because you will be comforted. Why is that? Well, I think that's because Jesus mourns along with you. Jesus is meek with you. Jesus dwells with the meek and He dwells with the peacemakers. He dwells with those who stand in the middle of conflict and try to stop the war and stop the battling. Because Jesus is the Savior who stretches His arm out in the middle of the conflict and says, enough of this war and death and sin. I'm taking that all on myself. And so as we see Him as a peacemaker, He is with the peacemakers. And they are happy because they see Jesus, because they're walking with Him. Obeying the law, seeing the law that is now written on our hearts as a a result of the Holy Spirit, the law that's given to us is something that as we follow it, as we trust the law that's written on our hearts, what we're doing is we're obeying Jesus and walking with Him through whatever He calls us into. And what He's in the process of doing is flipping the kingdom on its head. Jesus invites us into a relationship. Into a relationship where we're not, it's not about, hey, I just, I have some sin, and so Jesus, I need you to cover my sin, and then I'm done. Then I can just walk away on my own because now I got that taken care of. Right? That's taking life from Jesus. Jesus didn't come to die on the cross so that we can have the Holy Spirit so we can just force His hand and manipulate things wherever we want them to. That's a weird, that's weirdness, and we see that in our world today. Jesus comes to walk with us. To walk with us. That's when he says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to to obey all that I have commanded, and behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. Because of Jesus' authority, he commands us to go and walk with him to the very end of the age. We should be a people who are not defined by simple obedience of the of the written law not simply o- defined by obedience of the written law we should be defined by obedience of the savior that we know and we walk with we should be defined that way when people talk to you when people see you when people work with you when people are you know next to your cubicle they should be able to say 
man, I don't know about that person. They're kind of weird. They walk with Jesus. Unfortunately, we tend to subjugate that. We tend to substitute that for simple obedience. And actually, in this day and age, we're throwing holiness completely out the window. Completely out the window. We should be bringing Jesus with us wherever we go. This requires humility. It requires humility. It requires you to bow the knee and to bow the head. It requires you to bend your knee and say, Jesus, I want to live with you. I want to walk with you. Will you come into my life and walk with me? Will you come walk with me? Will you come take over my life? Will you bring me into your upside down kingdom? Teach me everything that this is about. And will you help me to live in such a way that I reflect you and I reflect that I'm walking with you? Jesus has this powerful relationship that he wants us to be a part of. And it changes things. It changes the way you see everything. It changes the way you relate with everything. It changes the way you forgive. It changes the way you love. It changes the way you work. It changes the way you do things. It changes our very nature and our very heart. It should change us completely. It should change us completely. I'm going to cue up a video real quick that will highlight this point just a touch, and then we're going to close and pray. So go ahead, Christina, and play that. My mother is 89 years old. She is the most missionally alive person that I've ever met. A few years ago, she was in her ground-level condo in Abbotsford, British Columbia. A young man, high on drugs, breaks into my mom's ground-level condo, goes into her bedroom, steals all of her money, all of her jewelry. 30 minutes later, police are called. They catch the thief. Fast forward three months. My mom finds out the young man is going to plead guilty and go to be sentenced to jail time. She phones me and says, David, I want to be there. I said, Mom, why do you want to go? She said, I want to be able to say to that young man that I forgive him and that I'm praying for him. Last year, I got a call from the lawyer. He said, you'll never believe it, but that young man that your mom prayed for, he's actually become a Christian. I got the contact information for Clark. And I said, Clark, is there any way you can come and meet my mother? He said, I'd love to come. He sat in her living room, the very place of the crime. He said to my mom, Mrs. Hearn, I robbed a few other houses after yours. And he said, I probably need to go back and, and spend some more time in jail. And then he said these profound words, but I do not go back as a prisoner, I go back as a preacher. When the place of the crime becomes the place of commissioning, you know that where the river flows, life abounds. Amen? Man, hard to believe that guy's Canadian. He's got so much emotion. David Hearn, the the Alliance president of the uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance president in Canada, uh, who actually, uh, his first pastor was in Hardin, Montana, among the sheep herders. So, yeah, could you imagine him being in Hardin, Montana? I don't know, man. But this is the very point, right? Like, this is what the law should do to us. The law should... We stand convicted under the law. Like I don't think we kind of miss this when we talk about this. We stand convicted under the law. Not a single one of us can obey it. In fact, every one of us has trounced on it, trampled on it, danced on it, and did it again. Every single one of us. And what Jesus says, what his great and incredibly scandalous his, his incredibly scandalous invitation to you is simply, hey, you break that law, and that's supposed to show you how much you need me. Now come, walk with me. 
Invite me into your life. Let me walk with you. Come give your life to me and I will bring life and life abundantly. But it's not going to look like this kingdom. It's going to look like the upside down one. This is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. You even get this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. There's this reaction of like, well then who can be saved? And Jesus' response is, with man it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This response, this, this, this idea of like walking with God and obeying the things that He's laying on your heart as the written law in the tablets of stone of your heart, that's the scandalous invitation Jesus brings to you. Is he says, hey, you cannot keep this by yourself. And the more you try apart from me, the more damned you are. Come, give your life to me. And I will walk with you. And I will walk with you. And behold, you will be with me to the very ends of the age. So my, ask, my question is simply this to you. Have you gotten to that point where you have decided life with God is the best? Or are you still struggling? I don't know where, with where you're at. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's revealing to you. If, you. if you live with life under God, or if you live with life from God, or life for God, or life over God, or whatever, but have you gotten to the point where you said, no, 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 no more of that. I want life with God. I want life with Jesus. I need life with Jesus. Jesus, come be with me. I will give you the opportunity to do that. I have to just pray and ask God, like, hey, come walk with me. I'm sorry for trying to walk over you. I'm sorry for feeling like I walked under your thumb. Come walk with me. And I tell you, you will not regret it. Jesus, I come before you, we come before you, and simply asking, Lord, that, that we would be those who walk in a robust way with the law that You've written on our heart, a filled way, a fulfilled way. Where when we walk with You, when we ask for Your guidance and Your direction in our life, when we're going through our day-to-day task, that it wouldn't be just us and then asking You to give us life, but it would be both of us together, You and me, walking daily. Whether it be through suffering, whether it be through pain, whether it be through heartache, or whether it just be through the mundane activity of living in a cubicle. Lord, we ask that you would help us to walk with you. That you would bring us on the path with you. Because that is what we need. We need life with you. Lord, forgive us for trying to manipulate you through obedience. Or sniffing our... Uh, or, or, you know, um, pointing our noses up and sniffing contempt of, contemptfully at your law. Lord, forgive us for the times where we've thought, man, as long as I obey, as long as I'm doing good, as long as I'm being holy, then I'm going to get all the things that I hope for and dream for. Help us simply to have a relationship with you where we walk with you. Lord, I don't know what you're doing in my friends' lives and my friends' hearts today, but I ask that they would walk with you. And I ask for me this week because I'm facing some really tough stuff. Same thing, I would walk with you. And that we would sense your presence and we would know your nearness. Because we need you. So Lord, we ask that you would come and that you would walk with us. We invite you into our lives and into our hearts today. We give you our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.